Well, if you will, join me. We, we, we are starting a new series in the book of Jude. The book of Jude, find the book of Revelation, and then go one book before that. Page 1,275 in my book, in my Bible. That might not help any of you. Now, if you come to my office, you'll find a beautiful oil painting. It's an oil painting of a road that's lined by aspen trees. Now, this painting is meaningful to me for, for actually a lot of reasons. One, it's an actual painting uh, of a, a scene right by my grandparents' cabin in Montana, right outside Red Lodge, Montana. And so as I look at it every day, I'm in that office, I can just hear the birds chirping. I, 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 can, I, I can just smell the crisp air. I, I can hear the flowing water of the creek. Not a creek. We always called it a creek. And so it, it just produces this painting, this nostalgia I have. Because some of my fondest memories growing up were, were, were on, at that cabin. Uh, at 13, that's where I learned how to drive. You could do that sort of stuff in Montana. At 14, it's where I got my first car crash. So every time I look at this, I'm just reminded of growing up and getting to just play uh, at my grandparents' cabin. The, the other reason why this is memorable, this painting is memorable, is because I inherited it this past summer when my grandfather passed away. And so every time I see it, I, I, I think of them. But there's one more reason. You see, I've always loved this painting. I, I, I just remember where this painting hung at my grandparents' house. I've always loved this painting because if you look at it, you, you realize that the road, as you just stare at the road lined by aspen trees, the, the road is a rugged road. It's uneven. There are potholes in this road. This is not a Thomas Kincaid painting. This is a Montana mountain rugged road. The road's dangerous. I, 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 haven't, I can't prove this, but I'm pretty sure if I studied this painting long enough, you could see some bear tracks. And so I've always loved this painting because I think it reminds me of the world that we live in. The road that we've inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. Life is like a Montana mountain road. Danger lurks. Danger lurks around each and every bend. And so in light of that, I'm going to ask you this morning, where, where do you put your confidence? If that is an apt metaphor for life, where do, you, where, where do you put your hope? Where do you look for, for security? As you travel this road, this mountain Montana road filled with potholes and the like, what do you look for for confidence? Well, this winter, we're, we're going to study the book of Jude. It's not a long book. It has 25 verses. It's a book, I'm wondering if you've read or recently read that you skip going, there's some odd stuff in this book. I don't really know what to do with this. 
But I don't think, I think we need to slow down. That's unfair. This, there's pure gold in this book. Jude wrote this book, this letter, around 60 AD to Christians in the early church. And so we're going to give our attention for the next four or five weeks to this book. Now, the point of the book, because sometimes I think it's helpful to, to not just look at a few verses in the book, but to kind of understand the whole book and how it works itself out. The point of the book, the, the purpose of this letter, is to instill confidence in the lives of Christians. Jude wants readers to know that they are kept safe by God. You're going to see that come up in verse 1 and all the way at the end of the book, this theme of being kept by God, held secure by God as we travel this rugged mountain road called life. So if you will, turn with me to Jude chapter 1. We're going to read and look at the first four verses. Verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, this, th- th- these four verses are neatly divided up for us, and I'll give you this big idea that should be behind us, and it's simply this, that the called are those who contend. The called are those who contend. Now, go back to verse 1. In verse 1, we, we're introduced to, to our author. Now, the, the author is Jude. And we find out two things, two descriptive things about the author at the first part of verse 1. And, and that is that he is a servant of Jesus Christ, and then second, he's brother of James. Which is really interesting. That those are the two things that Jude wants us to know about him. That he's the brother of James and that he's a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. Years ago, my wife bought me tickets for my birthday to go see a Blazer game. And uh, so we went to the game and they were basically about as high as you could get in the stadium. My wife and I were both in grad school. That even was a stretch for our budget. But there we were, having just a wonderful time watching the Blazers play. And I looked down by the player's bench, and right behind the player's bench, I see a guy who's in my small group. And they don't have a lot of money. What are they doing with courtside tickets? And so I text him. I just assume, like, oh, he snuck in there, so I was going to give him a hard time. So like, hey, what are, you, what are you doing? And so I texted him, and he texted me right back and said, oh, um, no, no, um, I got these tickets for my brother. My brother plays for the Blazers. <laughs> and it was at that point where I thought, oh, my 
gosh. And I connected his last name with an NBA star sitting on the bench. Now, if it were me, every time I introduced myself to anyone, I'd say, my name is Steven, my brother plays for the Trailblazers. It would be like that fast. Well, Jude name drops, but it's interesting which name he drops. He says that he is the brother of James. Now, James is the brother of Jesus, the the half-brother of Jesus. But he doesn't lead with, yeah, I'm the brother of Jesus. I mean, you, you, you can imagine most of us at a dinner party, if we were Jude, saying like, yeah, you've probably heard of me. You've definitely heard about my brother, Jesus. Jude doesn't do that. Jude says, I'm the brother of James, pointing out sort of who he is in this apostolic age. And then he does drop his brother, Jesus, but he connects himself not biologically to him. He does it spiritually. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus. Not a brother, a servant of Jesus. Jude's relationship fundamentally to Jesus isn't about biology. It's, it's, it's a relationship based on faith, which wasn't always the case. Remember back in Mark chapter 3? In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus sort of announces who he is, and then we read this interesting thing about Jesus' own family. Uh, he went home, Jesus, and the crowd gathered, uh, gathered around him so that they could not even eat. All right, so, so Jesus is with his family. He's trying to have, you know, Thanksgiving dinner, and there's this crowd surrounding, shouting out, Jesus, come out, come out. And then we read this. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, Jesus is out of his mind. No. Was Jude there? I don't know. But if he were, then he too was part of the family who thought Jesus was out of his mind. Well, no longer. No longer. Now, Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, the blinders on Jude, they're gone. Now he has faith in Jesus. And Jude realizes that his fundamental relationship to Jesus is not biological. It's through the faith he has that he is the Messiah. Which is wonderful. Because we learn that that Jude doesn't have an inside track to Jesus. No one does. His access is the same access that we have, which is faith. It's not through shared biology. It's through shared faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that's the author, Jude. Now let's look at who Jude writes to. And we see in the second half of verse 1 that Jude, he doesn't write to a specific church. You see Paul doing this. And if you've ever wondered why people call various letters the Catholic epistles, lowercase c, It's because these are just universal letters because we don't know exactly who they were written to. They are written to Christians generally. So Jude doesn't specifically tell us who he's writing to. He's writing to first century Christians. But we do know a few things about the audience. 
Jude says that he, he writes, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Oh, there, there is, this is amazing. Let's just slow down and look at these, these threefold kind of descriptive words as it relates to who these Christians are. First, they are the called, the called ones of God the Father. I think most of you know this, or at least some of you know this, that I hate texting. I hate it. I think it's stupid. Um, and, and partially because I hate texting someone and waiting for them to reply. I'm just, maybe I'm a control freak. I don't, I'm too impatient. But, but why would I do that when I could pick up the phone, call them, and at my convenience, get an answer to my question? I hate texting. And yet, when I call someone, I know something. I know that there is no guarantee that they will answer. I hope they answer. But there is no way I can guarantee. You know, they might hit that you know, button that says, I can't talk right now or, or whatever. Well, I think in some ways that's how we think about calling. That, that, that we call people, but, but you know, we're not in control if, if they answer. That's not how the Bible talks about calling. That is not fundamentally how the Bible talks about calling. God's power, God's will, and God's calling are all wrapped up in one. They are inseparable. I'll illustrate it by one kind of biblical story and text. Think of creation. God calls out light. And light doesn't say, God, give me a second. Light doesn't say, I'm not, I'm not ready to be light. God... Light doesn't say, I'm not going to answer that phone when God calls. No, God calls out light, and light was light. Well, this, the same thing is true for us. God's call, it's not an invitation. It's a divine summons. Such that when, when Christians are called, the, the language here, it's a passive language. He's not saying that, that those who, who, who God called are those who picked up the phone and answered, or those who finally understand that they are the called ones. No, it, this, this description is passive in form. Christians are those whom God has called, such that if God, if God calls you, you cannot be put on one of those do not call lists. God's calling is God's electing. But then flowing out of that, Christians are secondly described as the loved ones, the beloved, those whom God has affection for. Now, I know that, you know, we know the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We know Jesus loves us. We can get that right on any test. And yet I think sometimes it's hard to really believe that God loves us. And I think there's reason for that. I think there's many reasons for that. But, but one in particular I want to point out is that I think often we don't, we don't experientially believe that God loves us because of how our culture kind of works. Our culture, I think like pretty much any culture, it kind of relates on a conditional, uh, it functions conditionally. 
such that, it, you know, if you don't do X, you, you don't receive Y. Or let me put it in terms of parenting. Now, every parent that I've ever met loves their kids. But sometimes parents can communicate that if you don't get good grades, if you don't do these sorts of things, if, if you misbehave, my love will be withheld. I think sometimes, as it relates to why it's so hard for us to grapple with this idea that God loves us, is because we have been kind of enculturated in a world in which love is conditional. That when we're not lovable, well, then love is not given. Such that when we are lovable, when we do the right things, when we obey, then love is lavished on us. And so we intuitively then connect that with God, thinking, oh, well, God will only love me when I am lovable. But let me just remind us all, that is about as far from the gospel as I can think. The gospel does not say that God will love you when you are lovable. The gospel says the exact opposite, that God loves you while you are unlovable. That's the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel is that God loves the unlovable. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, when Phil read Deuteronomy chapter 7, this is one of my favorite Old Testament texts. God says that, that he's going to love his people, but did you notice why? It's, it's fascinating. He, he says, I don't love you because you're great in numbers. I, I don't love you because you're, you're, you're awesome, or I don't love you because of the great things that you're going to accomplish or what you can give to me. God doesn't love his people for any of those reasons, there is one reason in the text to which God loves them. God loves them because he loves them. It's circular, but I'll take it. God loves his people because he loves his people. He loves because he loves. He loves not because we're lovable. He is lovable. And as an extension of how lovable and lovely God is, he chooses to love. The Christians are the called ones. Second, they're the loved ones. And then thirdly, it says they are kept for Jesus Christ. Christians are those who are kept for Jesus Christ. Now, earlier I talked about my grandfather, well, my grandfather was one of those men that when I, as a kid, would walk with him, I felt safe. I, I know you have these sorts of experiences. That, that when I was walking with him in the Montana wilderness, if a bear would come upon me, I would have guaranteed that that bear would have been torn apart by my grandfather's bare hands or my grandfather would have died trying. I just always felt safe around him. Well, in many ways, those, those people in our lives, they're pictures of a divine reality. And the divine reality is that, that we are kept for Jesus Christ. God keeps us for Jesus Christ. He, he keeps us until Jesus Christ returns. We are, in a sense, the gift that God gives to Jesus Christ because of his death and resurrection. That's our identity. 
Jude doesn't say, I'm going to write to this particular church. He writes to Christians who are called, loved, and kept. That is the Christian's identity. We are the loved ones, the called ones, the kept ones. And in many ways, before we get to kind of what we are to do, what we are to accomplish, that which we are compelled to do, I think we've got to get our identity right first. Identity comes before purpose. And the amazing thing here is that it's passive. The the focal point of our identity, it's on what God does, not what we do. God calls. God loves. God keeps. We, We are those who have passively experienced that identity. I think that's why I'm so convinced that you should never put an adjective in front of Christian. And it just kind of peeves me when people do. You can put it afterwards, but never before it. So whatever identity factor you want, I'm a conservative Christian. No, you could be a Christian who is conservative, but there is no modifier to Christian. That is the fundamental identity for us. We are the called ones, the loved ones, the kept ones. That's who he writes to. Now, but before we get to what these Christians are called to do, it's interesting that in verse 2, I think we skip this, but verse 2 is a prayer. Jude prays for them, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, it's interesting that, that if you read the end of this book, if you were reading it all the way through, you'd realize that those three words thematically come up. And Jude calls them to mercy. Jude calls them to peace and unity. He calls them to love. He exhorts them to, to, to manifest those three things. But here, before he exhorts them, he prays for them. He, he prays that, that they would experience those threefold characteristics, mercy, peace, and love. And he prays that they would experience it before he exhorts them to live in light of them. Don't you think that's a good model? That before we encourage, before we critique, before we challenge, we should be praying that those things would be manifest. Well, that's what our author does. He, he, he prays in light of these realities. And after this prayer, after Jude kind of just, just let, let, kind of revels in this heavenly identity, their passive identity, he shifts to kind of point two. That, that not, not only are they called, the called ones, they're called to contend. Verses three and four. L- look at verse three with me. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Evidently, he, Jude wanted to write about their common salvation. He, he wanted to write and just revel in th- their heavenly identity. He, he wanted to write like what Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1 and 2, right? Write all of those amazing indicatives of the gospel. He, he wants to write, but he can't write about that because a more pressing thing has come up. Now, we're going to learn what that pressing thing is in verse 4. 
But, but right now he says that, 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 that he, he can't write to them because he wants to, con, um, he, he wants to appeal to them to contend for the faith. Now, let's just sort of break, break this down. Contending is, is a word that's used for the battlefield or the athletic field. It's, it's about struggle and strife, intense effort. That's, that's the idea of contending. The marathon runner contends to the finish line. And so he calls them to contend, to strive, to, to persevere in the faith. The, the faith that was once for all handed down to them. Now the faith here is not talking about trust. It's not saying like, I put my faith or trust in Jesus Christ. Faith here is just a, a, a synonym for truth, the, the, the basics of Christianity which has been handed down, the, the sort of apostolic tradition. A, a standard could be the gospel, sort of the, the mere aspects of Christianity, that, that, that Jesus Christ lived, that he died, that he was resurrection, resurrected, he ascended to heaven Right? And the necessity for faith and repentance, that is the truth, the apostolic truth handed down. And it was handed down and given once for all. Which means it doesn't change. The, the presentation might change a little bit. But the message does not change. It was given once for all. And here we have that, that as it relates to this message, given once for all to all the saints, we are to contend for its purity. We're to defend it. When it's challenged, when, it's, when people are seeking to change it, we are to seek to purify it and to stand against that, to safeguard the gospel. Not just pastors. Remember, this is written to all Christians. Now, why? Well, why are we to contend for the faith? Well, in verse 4, we find out why. Let me read it. Verse 4, for, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude says, you, you need to contend for this faith, for the, for the gospel, for the basics of Christianity, because people have crept in, secretly, like Navy SEAL style. And they are seeking to destroy that faith. I've been thinking about this all week, and I think it's very, very interesting that the people Jude is most worried about, did you notice? They're people inside the church. That's who are of his gravest concern. I th think there's a lot of talk these days about how ungodly our culture is. And in large part, I, d I don't disagree. That that's true. But, but let me just remind you that I don't think any of us should be shocked that non-Christians act like non-Christians. That shouldn't shock us at all. What should shock us are when Christians self 
uh, subscribing Christians within the church begin to start like start acting like non-Christians. That should surprise us, and that's what we find here. The damage is not from without, it's from within. Now, who were these men? Well, we sort of don't know. History has swallowed them up. But, but, but we do know at least four things from the text about them. One, we learn first that they will be judged and that their judgment was predicted long ago. Now, what I think this is talking about, and we're going to kind of fill this in in the next couple of weeks, I think this is in reference to the Old Testament. You know, later on in verse 11, he's going to kind of illustrate this judgment that comes on sort of false teachers through various Old Testament people, characters. So I think what he's saying is, hey, in God's people, in God's community, there have always been people within the community who have sought to undermine the faith of the community from within. So I think that's what's going on when he says these people will be judged and that judgment has been predicted from long ago. It's talking and referencing the Old Testament. Second, we learned that, that these people were, these men were, ungodly. They lived with no reference to God. They live as, lived as practical atheists. Third, we learned that they turned grace on its head. Similar to Paul, right, in the book of Romans. They used grace as a mechanism to sin. Oh, I know, I probably shouldn't do this. Ah, grace. And fourth, that they denied the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the, the first description explains that they will be judged. And I think that the second through the fourth is a description telling us why they will be judged. But, but if you think about that, the, the third through the fourth, that the, they are ungodly, they turn grace into an opportunity to sin, they deny the Lord Jesus Christ. If you, if you actually think about it, all those three they're all pretty much the same. There's a similar fountainhead. All three flow from the same fountainhead. These men denied the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a denial that Jesus has kingly authority over anyone. He has kingly rights. That's what's attacked. And I, and I think it's also interesting that if you just look at these descriptions of these men, it's not mostly talking about doctrine. It's talking about their character. They lived godless lives. It's not just that they were preaching godless messages. So I think the emphasis here, what's most in view, is that they, it's not just that they preached false doctrine. They, they probably did, but maybe they didn't. What we do know is that they preached false behavior. Their conduct was sinful. Their lives were more heretical than their teachings. What my guess is, they preached great sermons. They taught great orthodox biblical Bible studies. But when they were out of the pulpit, when they were out of the classroom, their lives were less orthodox. The problem, you can put it this way, the, the problem was not with their orthodoxy, the problem was with their orthopraxy, their behavior. I think this is really sobering. 
I mean, just think of the men. Mostly men. But think of the men who have disqualified themselves from ministry. Those sort of celebrity pastors that you read of in Christianity today. All of them had rock-solid pulpit ministries. They continued to preach the true gospel. They, their, their, their orthodoxy was without question. They preached the gospel. They were biblical teachers. That is not what disqualified them. What disqualified them, all of them, was their lives. That they preached the true gospel, but then lived lives where they you know, were frauds or abusive or sexually permissive. It was not their, their, their pulpit ministry that got them fired. It was their private ministry that disqualified them. And I think that's what we have here. These, these men were, were theists, but they lived as practical atheists. They preached grace, but then they turned grace on its head so that they could kind of, you know, sub, you know legitimize the, their various sinful behaviors that they wanted to. They preached Christ and him crucified, but then when Jesus made a kingly claim on their life, they said, yeah, Jesus, you can't touch that aspect of my life. They, they were too good at theological loopholes. And this is what Jude is so concerned about. This is why he writes to them. He wanted to write about their common salvation, but he can't. He can't let these, these men inside the church keep growing. He knows that, that, that this will affect the entire church faster than any virus. And so Jude, he, call, he, he writes to these called ones, and he says, I need you to contend for the faith. I want you to contend. Now, as we keep going, he's going to flesh out what that contending looks like from 17 to the end of the chapter. So I'm not going to spoil that sermon for you. Here, all we know is that contending is striving. That they're contend for the faith and the faith that, that's manifest in their lives. That they could need to be concerned as a church, as Christians, with two things, with their doctrine and with their lives. It reminds me of Paul when he writes to Timothy, encouraging him in his ministry, and he says, watch your doctrine closely. No, he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Preserve in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. My guess is, each and every one of us, the, the, the greatest threat to the purity of the gospel is not that we will not articulate it faithfully and be, in that sense, heretical. I'm guessing that's not how we would fall. My guess is that it comes from behavior not fitting to the gospel. The the gravest that, I think, to us is that we would begin to live unorthodox lives, not necessarily that we'd be getting to teach unorthodox truths. I think this is my tension every week. I am keenly aware of this in my own life. I know that I preach a better gospel than I often live. I, I know that I can manifest love as I gather with you saints in the church, and then when I want my Sunday afternoon nap, 
that love turns into outright rage. I'm well aware of the disconnect between doctrine and our lives. And so he calls us to contend, to fight, to strive for not just the truth handed down to us, but the truth handed down to us that's then manifested with our lives. And it's a moment-by-moment striving. Doctrine is really important. This is why we have a statement of faith, to, to has guardrails so that we have true biblical doctrine. Doctrine's very important. But so is lived doctrine. If you want to contend against false teachers, it's easy to contend against them verbally. Like, it's really easy to contend against, let's say, the prosperity gospel verbally. It's really easy. You know what's much harder? To safeguard our own hearts away from greed and materialism. Oh, that's much harder. And Jude would say we need to do both. We need to contend against it verbally and experientially. So what are you contending for these days? What are you fighting for these days? What are you striving for these days? Well, Jude would encourage us all that we ought to be first and foremost contending for the faith, contending for the gospel, contending for the truth that has been handed down from generation to generation, which is not just truth on paper. It's truth that should be lived out in our hearts and in our lives. All of us, metaphorically speaking, are journeying on a Montana mountain road. Now, not all of our roads are the same. They all look a little bit differently. And yet every road is, in its own way, rugged. So where do you find your confidence? Well, Jude reminds us that our confidence is in our identity in God. As the called ones, the loved ones, and the kept ones. And our identity is that as we live out that identity, we do so contending for that very identity, contending for that very truth. Being called and, being, and contending are not intention. The called ones contend. Those who contend are the called ones. Those two realities are married in the book of Jude. Let's pray. Lord, we, we cannot imagine nor fathom that you call us, keep us, and love us. We so often withhold love because others are not lovable in our estimation, and yet you do not do that with us. We are grateful that that is the Christian gospel, the Christian gospel that we get to hold out to our friends and our and our family, and our neighbors, and the gospel held out to us. We are grateful for your son, and we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.